This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Ben Gallagher, the co-founder of Lux Collective. Ben, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Lux Collective, for those that don't know, is two very important things. One, you guys are a, uh, a luxury reseller. You take um, luxury goods that are pre-owned and you, you sell them to other people that want them. And on top of that, you're also a media platform. You use a variety of channels, um, and we'll, we'll talk a lot about that, uh, mainly TikTok right now. And you, you reach people. And I think one of the main reasons I wanted to have you, at least for this initial conversation, is to tell people that don't really know about TikTok what's up with TikTok. Mm, yeah, for sure. Like TikTok's in the news a lot. And I think we all know that like not everyone really gets what's going on with TikTok. Like I... I, I will admit, I don't use TikTok. I've seen people use it. And I'm like, I'm 40. I'm like, you know what? This isn't going to add to my life. But undeniably, look, like there's a lot of people using TikTok. So as someone who doesn't understand TikTok, what is your perception of it right now? From like, If you had to say, what do you think is TikTok is? Okay. So I'll tell you this. So I've, se- I've been like on flights where like a few rows away, I've seen someone using TikTok like the entire time. And I remember this one flight, like there was some girl using TikTok and I was just mesmerized. I mean, like the entire flight, she was on the thing. And like, I wasn't staring the entire time, but from time to time, I couldn't help but notice like what this, what this girl was watching. And it was like lots of videos of regular people doing like tricks, like singing or dancing or something silly. And it's like she couldn't get enough of watching this. And like, I grew up watching a lot of like scripted content. And the idea was like, you see professional people in entertaining scenarios and in exchange for that, you got to watch some advertising. And then I noticed that people were like, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to see amateur people flailing around. And so that's like, that's my perception. Is that weird? No, that's, that makes complete and utter sense, especially especially the fact that it's so contrasted to what you're used to and what you grew up with. But I think from what you from what you said there, it was a perfect summarization. But if you think about it, it makes complete sense that people want to consume, like you said, like the amateur content. Like people want to feel connected to people. And from someone who I think, especially with like the Gen Z millennials, it's really hard to feel kind of like, connected and, and like associated with just a scripted conversation where it like alongside it you've got real people doing real things where obviously that connectivity is going to be much easier to, to, to get just because they feel like they can do stuff like that whereas the scripted stuff it's a skill and like being able to present it's a skill but like if they see someone doing something really amateur or something really silly like you said they feel connected because they can put themselves as the protagonist in that video does that make sense so it's like vicarious living. What do you mean by vicarious? Well, if you can't do it yourself, the next best thing is watching someone else doing it. Yeah, true. However, I genuinely feel like the mo- mo- most of the stuff that goes viral is because people connect to it, meaning that they feel that they can do it as well. So like there was a video about a year and a half ago, two years ago, where like this fella in LA, um, your hometown, like was on a skateboard with a, 
uh, Fleetwood Mac just playing on in the background. So that went like mega viral, hundreds of millions of views. And all the video was, was some person on a skateboard, just, <laughs> like listening to some music. But like, that's why it's so easy just to like gain following, gain customers, gain brand exposure. Because like the content you can make is just so easy. There are obviously like different things about it in terms of like how to get more likes, how to get people to watch more like tricks of the algorithm. But you can literally create an account on TikTok, post nine videos, and one of those videos will go viral. And you, if you're a business, a personal brand, you will get the most like companies or people reaching out, the most leads ever that you probably would have got in a year before you posted on TikTok, if that makes sense, before you use TikTok as an app to kind of gain exposure, which I think is wild. Like, I think absolutely crazy. You can make nine videos and one just get millions of views. It is wild, but it's not exactly what you do because what you guys do is not pure amateur stuff. You you put on mm -hmm. a show. I've seen some of your stuff, and that's one of the reasons why I'm 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 having you you know here and so proud to chat with you because you do media. You found this channel for silly dance videos, but you don't do silly dances. You have. Well, I mean, would you call it like a little talk show? What would you call it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a news slash information slash education based show. So like why I kind of like got onto that bit at the beginning, like saying like you can do nine videos and one go viral is because that's a great way to start. That's exactly how we started. One of our first nine videos went viral. Then over two, three years, we did three to five videos a day, every single day. Some of them were silly. Some of them were, some of them were informative. And what you get from creating so much volume is that you start to understand what works on the platform and what works for you and what works with your audience. And then you can start to do more of that type of content. So like over the last year or so, we've really refined our quality and really refined our niche. And that's what we've created now is what you say. We've created a kind of show, a consistent uploading kind of like machine on, on, of content on TikTok that people come back to every single day and people know exactly why they're coming to to our account. So how many videos a day do you make right now? You said you said multiple videos a day. Um, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I used to write multiple articles a day. And, you know, we were we were chatting about this when we first met. Like, that's unsustainable. Mm -hmm. Like, you can only be a crazy content machine for a certain, like, small number of years when you're young. And after that, you know, so it's like, all these big companies with these departments and teams, they can never compete with some kid doing two to five videos a day, right? Like they just can't do it. So it's yeah, funny absolutely. how the amateur has the advantage in the social media game because like no like business entity is really ever going to be able to like do that kind of volume and passion. One million percent. I do think it's slightly changing, but the thing is with big companies is they are so slow to act because there's so much red tape there's so much like brand protection they have where exactly how you've said with um, individuals, they don't have really a brand yet. They don't have anything that they have to protect. They just want to get views. They just want to get clout. They just want to get cap. Do you know what I mean? Like, like they'll do, they'll do anything to like get exposure because like anyone on social media is cat or like trying to grow their brand is basically like a professional attention seeker. Like they're going to do anything, but obviously with brand, with brand, with all these different departments, with all HR, with all everything, they're like you said, they're so, like, they're so slow to act and they can't keep up. But I think what, what is changing about it is that the, the hiring of individuals for these roles, like every company 
in the next 10 to 20 years is going to have a content department. Like they just have to have it because social media is like the way we all consume energy. Every Everywhere you look, like you said at the beginning, that girl on the plane, she was just on TikTok for the whole flight. Like it, 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 like the, the way we consume information now as a majority, especially with the generation that I am, that we're growing up, it's just all through our phone. It's all through social media. So yeah, like the, the way the way what we do now is we produce, we try and produce 10 pieces of content per week uh, for each, uh, for like the platforms combined. So we've got TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube that we, that we uh, sorry, 15 pieces. We, we, we've got Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. And what you can do is you can post videos on TikTok and then you can literally post the same exact video on Instagram. The, the, there, there is a kind of conversation around like, do you have to contextualize it to your platform? But I think if you have a niche audience and an audience that consumes a very, very similar type of stuff, I don't think you need to worry about contextualizing it. All that matters is the information and the actual content and creative itself. I want to ask an important question to sort of get it out of the way, because I think that's on a lot of people's minds. And and I know I'm putting a lot of responsibility on you to answer it. Um, in the news a lot, there's, you know, this government is agency says that people can't use TikTok on their phones and da, 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 da. I think the question I'd like your opinion on is, is, is TikTok dangerous or is this a misunderstood thing? I think, like, I've heard in the news and stuff, like, obviously, it's the Chinese app. And then, like, America and China have a little bit of beef in it like, over the years. And, like, they think that they'll be grabbing data from, um, like, U.S. citizens or whatever, stuff like that, and U.K. It's just literally been banned in the U.K. for politicians. So U.K. politicians can't have TikTok on the phone because it breaches security. I thought that's because they're too distracted. I, well, probably <laughs> probably that as well. It needs, it needs, ban, it needs banning in our office because everyone's distracted on it, but it's how we run our company. So I can't be a hypocrite and say, you can't be on it, you can't be on it. But no, I think consumption um, motivates inspiration. So it, it's, it's, um, it's good that everyone's always on it because everyone's always throwing ideas around. But anyway, back to the point is that like, the US have created Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, all these di- Twitter, all these different apps, and the rest of the world use it. And no one's ban- no one's banning banning it in their countries, or like maybe a few selective have. So I think it just depends on like, like, like let's be honest, like none of us are, are, are like a secret person. Like you may be like not put stuff out there, but like if people really want to find stuff out about you, they're gonna find stuff out about you. But like that's only like governments and like whatever, like the average person, it's not like I would like I personally wouldn't say it's it's a, it's, it's a risk or anything to do. Like maybe like that's what some people would have worried of, but I think there's a lot more things to be worried of about if a lot more things to be worried about than whether you have TikTok on your phone or not. Well, I'll say this from what I've read about it, and I'm not an expert in the issue is that there doesn't seem to be anything that is like more dangerous about TikTok than any of the other social media platforms, right? Like if you're worried about Uh data privacy, they're all in the same boat. They all sort of have the same exactly. access to data. Uh, you know, I, obviously there's behaviors that within the app that is special data, but I, I guess I sympathize a little bit with TikTok in the sense that like, th- yes, they're collecting data to do the thing that they need to do, but it's, you know, the, the data is part of the the business. It's not, you know, there, I, I guess you could do, do unethical things with it, but there's no evidence that they have. There's, there's more evidence that 
the American companies have done some pretty horrible things, honestly, right? Literally, that you've you've hit the nail on the head. Like, like that is it. Like all of those social media companies are the exact same, and it's just because this one isn't a US one. I think people are getting the backs up a bit because they don't they don't trust they don't trust the, the Chinese. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting just because when you when you read the news and you this the whole story isn't there, right? It's part of it. Um, uh-huh. I, I guess the next question, and I think this is very interesting for anyone listening to this, when you talk about luxury, you have a show and you said you have an audience and you reach that audience through TikTok and now other channels. What is it that, mm-hmm. that you feel they want to know about luxury? Because I think a lot of – it's interesting to talk because we assume that's a younger audience. Everyone has a pretty young experience with luxury. What do what does yeah. your audience want to know about luxury? That's a really good point. So like with our audience, when we first started on TikTok, we were like very, very early. So we started in 2019 and we definitely had like an audience probably no older than like 25 to 30. But now like – it is so varied. We've got from like probably like 14, 15, all the way up to like 60s. Like I've been stopped in the streets by like various different ages of people saying, I love your content. So I'm really grateful for that because like we just have such an array of people who like luxury. And that again, for me, kind of like tells me that luxury is for everyone. It's not for a certain person. It's not for a certain age. It is if you enjoy it. It is for you. And that's what kind of our brand is about, like making luxury accessible to everyone. We're pre-loved stuff. Um, we offer it at a cheaper price. We offer ultra-luxury stuff that you can't get hold of, like uh, rare and discontinued items. Like luxury is for everyone. And when I was a kid, I couldn't afford luxury. And I always thought that it was for a select group of people until I started really immersing myself in the industry. And I wanted, I don't want other people to feel how I felt when I was a kid. So like my aim is kind of like to make luxury for everyone. And that's like the kind of content it's like foreshadowed in the type of content that I produce by educating people on luxury, like making them feel like they know luxury inside and out. So the main, the main target for our content and like the main aim of it is just to educate people on everything about it. Cause like I learn new stuff every single day. And like most of my content is when I learn something, I make a video so I can teach other people. Because like I'm like, this is fascinating. I think other people would want to know this. For example, Bottega Veneta, when they released their lifetime warranty uh, on their bags, uh, like uh, just before the year ends, I was like, this is really interesting. People are going to want to know this. But like, you don't just get people who are interested in Bottega Veneta who are interested in that topic. They're like, oh my God, I wish my favorite brand did this. Or they're like, oh my God, loads of other brands should do this because this is a really good idea. It increases sustainability. It means that the brand trusts what they're creating. Like, yeah, like, Everything I do and all the content I'm trying to create is just to educate the person on the other side of the screen. Let's talk about the term luxury, because I think that you made a very interesting point about how luxury uh, is important to people at different age levels and different groups. Uh, That means that as a concept, it's quite malleable. But at the end of the day, it needs to have a definition. It needs to mean some things and not others. Many people would define it as an exclusivity factor, meaning something that I have that you cannot have or some other group cannot have. Um, not a very socially pleasant way of, of defining it. So how do you define luxury? That's a really good point. I would define, that's a really good question. I would define luxury as something that is, it's, it's definitely not something that's available to the masses. So exclusivity is definitely a point in it. I would say it's priced highly. It's, it's high priced goods. It's high quality goods, durable goods, I've never really thought about this question, you know. I'm just trying to reel off, like, things I would describe it as. It's not easy. It's not easy. No, it's not at all, because loads of people have got different things of it, because 
I know loads of people who say Louis Vuitton is not a luxury brand because there's so much of it. Like the supply is massive of it. And like these are like people who look at it and be like only Hermes and Goyard and Moina and Delvo. They're like, like they're like the luxury brands and Laura Piana, stuff like that. But then you've got other people on the other side of the spectrum. I, th- I, th- I genuinely think luxury is what, what everyone's perception of it is different. So I was, I had a friend in my office the other day and we were trying to discuss the, what the word brands meant. And we were like, I don't know. Like, what does brands mean? So like, I had to give my definition. She gave her definition. And then we were like, no, they're not right. And then we Googled it and literally went on Google Images and every definition of brand was different. <laughs> and I think, this is, I, think, I think this is the same for luxury. Everyone's definition of luxury is different because it means it means different things to different people. But that's not an elegant solution, right? There has to be one elegant definition that includes it all. Well, people like to, people like to label stuff as one thing, innit? But I think the way that the way that we are as especially with the younger generation growing up now, I think everything's like did you use the word malleable before, which is like means like like quite flowy, like not set set in, set in stone yeah. and stuff like that. I ge- I genuinely think that's what luxury is. I think I think it's it's very malleable. I can tell you my own personal definition of it. Who, as someone who has philosophized about this many times, and you're right, it depends on it, it is it is highly contextually based. But at the end of the day, I like to think of words uh, in terms of the core meaning as well as having an opposite. I I, I think about words a lot. Maybe since mm-hmm. I went to law school. But if a word doesn't have an opposite, I don't like it. Everything has to have an opposite. Everything has to be part of a binary, right? So sometimes if you can't really define a word. I think to myself, what's the opposite of it, right? Like we have good, the opposite is bad. Okay, I can understand that. Luxury, what's the opposite? And then, and then it becomes interesting, right? So it's not a precise analog, but the analog I have best is this. The opposite of luxury is efficiency. And thus, luxury is just extra. When you can have ah. extra, when you can be extra, when it is extra, when you live with just what you need, that is subsistence. No one's happy with subsistence. No one aspires and wakes up in the morning to go out and subsist. The absolute mm-hmm. basics is the efficiency. That's what you just need to get by. Anything extra is a luxury. Mm. I like the way you, you broke that down. It's very much easier to digest about how I said it. <laughs> no, look, I mean, no, I've really- thought about this. I've had a couple of years, you know, to, to, to ponder this notion. So it's okay. But I'm just saying... You know, when you're talking about a sub, I mean, it's basically in the name of your company, right? You should have a yes. working model of what it is and what it isn't. Yeah, for sure. But I suppose, like, like going off the back of my point, which is making me think based off what you said, because like, for people in the world, water could be a luxury, food could be a luxury, shelter sure. could be a luxury. So, like, yeah, that like as soon as you said what is luxury, I instantly thought of bags and shoes. Well, for many people, that is, so that, right? Because you need to carry your stuff around, but to be able to carry it around nicely, that's a bit extra, right? You need to drive around, yeah. but to have a nice car that goes fast, it's a bit extra. Yeah, I'm literally just looking over an Aldi garage now and I'm thinking, yeah, like people don't need them cars, but it's a, it's a nice extra to have. It's a luxury. Cars, I think for yeah. many people, are their first entrance to luxury because just growing up, in most places around the world, you see cars, and if you're aware, you're like, not every car looks the same. And you start to yeah. really realize what the differences are. And pretty soon, you know that some cars cost a lot more than others. Why? And then it opens your eyes to the world of luxury. That's how it was for me in Los Angeles. What about you? Was it cars? Was it something else? I would say I would say shoes. Shoes. So shoes. Like when we were 
kid, yeah, when we were kids, um, we we went to we grew up in like a very rich area, so like all the kids they had a lot of money, and like with school shoes, we had to wear always all black school shoes. But what kids used to do to be trendy, where I'm from, is like wear trainers, so you didn't have to wear like suit shoes or like like brogues or anything like that. It just, just had, had to, to be, be black. black, exactly. Yeah, so. Like you would see people in like, and this was when I was very, very young. It was like D squared trainers. And I was like, how much a day? And they were like 350 quid. And I was like, what? You're wearing a pair of 300 pound shoes for school. And I was like, what brand is it? And they were like D squared. I was like, let me look into this. And obviously like D squared isn't a massive luxury brand. But back then when I was a kid, I was like horrified and shocked. I was like, how the <laughs> hell are people, how, the, but and like, that was what gave me the bug for shoes. So like I started researching into loads of different brands and then Balenciaga was a massive one when I was about 12 or 13. Um, the arenas had just come out and people were wearing arenas for school shoes and stuff like that, like the all black ones. And I was like, oh my God, this is wild. And I just had like a pair of 20 quid like pumps just to just just for school. So like, yeah, that was really my first experience of luxury, like kids wearing very expensive school shoes. It's all about the trainers, money, right? If it didn't black. cost that much more, you'd be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But the fact that there was a big cost differential, like made you stop and be like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, is it even worth that amount, right? And that's, I think, a fundamental question. You probably had, I had it with watches, when I first start getting into is, okay, this watch costs more, is it worth that much more? If so, why? I'd really like to know. What do you, like, how do you decide whether a watch is worth that much? So like, if someone said this watch is 50,000 pounds, and then you go, hmm, let me have a look. Is it worth that? What are the things that you look for and be like, yeah, actually it's worth 50,000 pounds or you know what? It's not, or it's worth more. Very simple. Uh, it's a good question. I look strictly at what I call inherent value, meaning outside of social conventions and popularity, is this something which is actually worth that? So I say, how much does this cost to make, not, not just the sheer manufacturing, having the company, the skills, how rare is it, hmm. the, you know, the production volume, if it's low production volume, I know they're going to have to charge more per unit. But I try to investigate and understand the whole world around what it costs to create and make. And then is the company, are they, are, do they have a reasonable margin? If they're char charging, you know, a few times what it costs to make, th th that makes sense. If they're charging, you know, dozens Fair of enough. times, that's too high of a margin. So what does it cost to make? What's their margin? Do I accept the culture around that? And boom, that's how I determine if something's worth it. Things uh, can be extremely popular and that makes them valuable. That does not, inc that does not uh, increase their inherent value to me. So I, I'm entertained by uh, expensive watches owned by celebrities and certain brands that have a lot of appeal. But if that thing doesn't have high inherent value to me, uh, I, I will not take it seriously myself. So what brand would you say brand of watches is not worth the money? You know, I think it was about five, maybe a little bit longer ago, years ago, where I started noticing what I'll call these like social media brands. And they put a lot of money into like marketing and they made content and they had all these feel good messages and they knew exactly what kids wanted to hear. Uh, but their products costs a couple of dollars to make and they wanted to charge oftentimes over a hundred and they were not even designing anything. There were actually factories, many of them, in, uh, in, mm. in certain parts of the world. And they were literally saying, put our logo on your existing design, okay? Yeah. Uh, we, we joke, we call them Alibaba watches or things like that because all you would do is slap yeah. your logo on there. And then they would make a whole brand around it. And for me, 
if you're buying a watch, you need to be buying at least some originality. At the very least, have something that's original. The company had to design something. When they made a marketing concept and they plastered a logo around it and around an existing thing, for me, that is like the opposite of what I want to spend money on. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty obvious kind of answer. And what I was trying to find out earlier was like, are there any top brands like the Rolexes, the APs? Are there any type of ones like that that you think, you know what, they're not worth the money? Okay, that's a good question. Now, here's the thing. Most of the watches at those at those levels are qualitatively good watches, right? Like they make a good watch. They're not a bad watch. But sometimes you'll have a company that charges like $17,000 for something and another company will charge like $38,000 for qualitatively the same thing. Now, you might argue that the people who uh, are spending $38,000, they're trying to buy into a certain club. They're like, I'm a $38,000 watch kind of person. Mm. And so for them, it's not really about inherent value. But there are a couple of brands where you really do pay for the brand name. Rolex is a good value. Patek Philippe has never been considered a good value. Patek Philippe is a very expensive watch. Um, they charge many times more for the same complications, materials. Arguably, they do some things well and some things interesting. But but as nice as their watches are, they're, no one's going to argue they're a good value, right? Yeah. So I think that even, the, even though those are both like very, very popular, they're at very different ends of the value spectrum. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So... Let's talk about something that I know you're. I know you're doing the host of no, the podcast. No, it's okay. But just a I, I love answering questions. <laughs> just a question about some of mine. What do you think of the luxury brands watches that create watches? So, like you've got your Gucci, your Louis Vuitton, um, like Tiffany, like these these luxury brands which are known for something else coming into like your market, the market that you dominate, that you love. How do you feel when they when they are making watches? Like, do you think they're priced too high? Like, what's the quality difference? Like, what's the price difference? Like, what do you, what's your opinion on, like, luxury fashion brands making uh, high-quality watches? Or That's, if they are high-quality? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think they're actually mostly undervalued. There's a lot of fantastic things here. Some of the world's best watches have come from these places. Fashion houses tend to make the most beautiful watches. And when they really set their minds to it, they make watches just as nice as any old watch brand. Uh, A lot of these fashion houses even started as as watch brands. So I think that if there's a bias against a watchmaker because it's part of a fashion house, that doesn't make sense. It is true that about, I don't know, 30 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, um, fashion houses used watches as like a low price thing, kind of like sunglasses, right? Like sunglasses, like the cheapest way into Chanel or something like that. And there was a small period of time to get them in. Yeah, and for a period of time when department stores were big, this was a thing. Watches were produced by licensed partners, Fossil Group, for example, uh, Timex, Movado. Mm -hmm. That was a big part of their businesses, right? So Michael Kors, Mm -hmm. for example, um, was like a a not expensive way of getting a Michael Kors produced by the Fossil Group, fantastically beneficial for them both. And so there is some real examples of fashion watches not necessarily being as high-end, but there's actually just as many examples. Uh, you know, uh, Louis Vuitton is a great example. I mean, yeah. fantastic high-end watches. They do uh, top-tier stuff. They also, you know, go down uh, to to you know several only only several thousand dollars per watch. Um, there is you might not like the design. Louis Vuitton might not be the brand for you, but 
there's really no scoffing at their watches. So I have tried to get a lot of men to be more comfortable with the fashion watch because they oftentimes are the prettiest, are, are actually yeah. a decent value in a lot of times. So if, you're, if you have some weird bias against it, you, you, you might want to do a little bit more education. Not you, but to someone out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it Louis Vuitton stole the head designer from Patek Philippe to design the watches? I mean, there's a lot of poaching and things like that all, all, all over the place. In recent history, there hasn't been anything like that. But it is true that the people um, who work at La Fabrique du Temps, which is this, this Swiss watchmaker in Geneva that Louis Vuitton owns, came from other brands. So for example, they just came back out with Daniel Roth, which is a sort of small boutique brand. But the people La Fabrique du Temps actually were making the Daniel Roth watches 20 years ago. And so they're sort of bringing it back. So it is sort of this very incestuous environment. It is kind of a small world. But I wouldn't so much look at it as like, you stole me from here and from here. People move around. They work for one another. It's, it's pretty common. Okay, so it's not as competitive as maybe the average person would look at it as. Uh, Sales-wise, it's competitive, but there's such a small number of people around the world who can do these jobs adequately, and they've been sort of focused yeah. around this small number of people that for people to move around, top managers, things like that, it's it's pretty common. Things get things would get very scandalous if like a manager at a Swiss brand went to like a Japanese brand. And that has happened before. Um, yeah. Like Seiko, for example, in the United States is mostly run by ex-Omega people. Like, and and uh, Omega can't be super happy about that, right? But like yeah. Seiko and Grand Seiko is like, it's basically saying like, we want to, to do what Omega did and they just hired the people. And that's, no one talks about it too much, but that's a kind of semi-scandalous move right there. So stuff like that that's happens. That's quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> these, are good, these are good questions. No, so like that's very similar in the fashion industry. So like you'll get creative directors hopping from brand to brand. So like, like Tom Ford, he was at Gucci, then he obviously left to do his own thing. Marc Jacobs was at Louis Vuitton, yeah. then left to do his own thing. And Nicolas Gasquier was at... Balenciaga then went to Louis Vuitton like they like they all just they all just like hop from one job to another which kind of makes sense because like say the average person who has like a nine to five job or in a career or in like something that they do they hop from job to job they hop from company to company and it's just about like what what entices them to go there is it is it money probably not in like this type of um game because like all the money is always big it's probably like opportunity it's probably creative freedom it's probably being able to create something that could change the world be, being able to give, get, give that responsibility yeah for the sure the number one, one reason they leave is they don't I, and i've i've i mean it sounds like you have a little bit on the fashion side but i've worked with a number of great creative directors on the watch side and on nice. a regular basis, they'll be like, Ariel, I need another job. I'm like, what happened? Why, why are you leaving? Oh, they stopped letting me design anything. Like, that's really the thing. Yeah. And they some just put of them, them in a box and, yeah. Yeah, some of them go to do their own brand. And some of them, that's actually quite common. Like, I just received a, a watch recently that, that from a brand I like called Gorilla, um, which was started by the former creative director, uh, or the designer of Audemars Piguet. And yeah. Audemars Piguet, you know, famous brand, but like they, not much changes there. They make little tweaks here and there. It wasn't until after he he left that they came with the Code 1159, which was like their first new case in like forever. And they just feel stifled. They're at these great brands where they can just like do tiny, tiny tweaks. And so that's really what they're doing. They're chasing someone that will allow them to do their thing. And then someone, you know, indulges them with budget for a few years, realizes, oh, that's too expensive. We got to put a, a, a stop on it. And then they move elsewhere. Yeah. But like 
I I would say that it's actually just as um, hard to keep a designer down in the watch space than it is in the fashion space. What do you mean by that? So you think it's hot, like you think people in the watch space jump from job to job more than fashion? Well, in fashion, it's constant. I mean, it's constant with yeah. fashion. To keep someone happy, like you basically have to keep them busy. <laughs> like that's what you do. Like don't let them even think yeah. about another job. In the watch space, they, they always want to do more. And so what ends up happening, if the creator isn't creating, they want to go somewhere mm. else where they can create. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vile in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Weil harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Weil is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-weil.com to see more. I think, yeah, so that's really interesting you say that. I think for fashion industry, it, the luxury fashion industry, like when I say the fashion industry, it's completely the opposite way around where like brands get bored of the same thing. So like, for example, let's take um, Alessandro Michelli. He was the creative director of Gucci. He joined in 2014, 15, something like that. And he left November of last year. And it was just because... It was just the same stuff getting created all the time. There was nothing new getting done. And a brand of Gucci's heritage and of, of stature and of like, like Gucci didn't want the same stuff. They wanted something new. They wanted something for refreshing. They've got to uh, hit targets. They've got to like explode. Like they've got to keep on growing. And like, they just get to a stage with a certain designer where they feel like they've got everything out of them as they possibly can. And that's them like that. It's kind of like that designer is that style. Like Balenciaga with Demner at the moment, he's been there since 2014, 2015, yeah. something like that. And he is just producing the same stuff over and over again. And I do think he will move on as well. And like, it's just really interesting that like, it's it's really, it's opposite in the watch space. Like these brands will give these designers time, but then once they feel like they need a change, they will just get rid of them. Like in, like, like. In, in the UK, like soccer, it, you call it soccer, isn't it? Like football managers, they get sacked if they're not performing well really quickly. In a- As you're saying this, I want to make yeah. a distinction. In fashion, it's usually the brand that gets rid of the designer. In watch world, yeah, it's true. usually the designer that leaves by themselves. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, that's what, that's why in, in that long-winded way of trying to explain it, that was, that was, that's the conclusion of it for sure. Yeah. I, and, and the designers in the watch space leave because, again, it's just no one will invest in their ideas. The, their dream is they'll have like an art patron like manager, like, you know, so and so designer, you're great. I just want you to keep creating good stuff. And then when the budget for R&D dries up, they're just like, screw this. I'm out of here. <laughs> That's yeah. what happens. So, you, yeah, you, you could argue the watch designers are more selfish. Well, Fashion needs to have more novelty. Fashion, by definition, produces new stuff all the time. They want uh-huh. hits. They want constant hits. And then shareholders love a hit. So if a hit's there, they're like, no, 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 don't mess with the formula. Just do little tweaks. And then the designer hates that because the designer wants to move yeah. on to entirely new stuff. Yeah. 
yeah, in the watch really space, it costs so much to R&D a watch that like yeah. you can't, there's no runway shows, right? Like you either make a watch or you don't. Runway shows are like, uh-huh. ah, we'll make one piece. If people like it, we'll make more. But prototypes yeah, just yeah. cost way much more money in, in the watch space. I've actually was wondering, this is the weirdest thing. A lot of the brands that do runway shows, their watch departments have no connection. Like once in a while, like Louis Vuitton, for example, you're never, you're like maybe once in a while, but you'll never see a Louis Vuitton watch on the runway. And most brands, it's no, like that. It's the yeah. weirdest thing. Yeah, no, it's like completely different sector, isn't it? Well, they say like, well, you know, if it goes with the look. And for me, I'm thinking, isn't the point that the watch is supposed to go with a bunch of looks? So I know it's kind of heretical mm. to the art of the designer that wants to have this purest fashion, whatever. But from a marketing standpoint, isn't it kind of cool to say, and our watches go with anything we make, even concept outfits? I think you're saying that because you're such a watch enthusiast. I think a stylist will be like, horrified, no, right? It looks, it looks ugly. I'm not putting it on the Maybe. runway. <laughs> Baby. So, okay. So again, let's, let's go back to this question of your audience on TikTok, yes. we're having a really cool conversation about luxury, but we know a lot about it. Are, yeah, are people sure. just wanting to know what's cool? Do they want to know where to where their money's going to go the farthest? I mean, help me understand what's on their minds. So with social media, it's like completely not what you just said, which doesn't make sense. Like, why are people watching my content? Oh, it's because they want to know stuff. It's actually not. Like with social media, what we've come to realize is that you're on someone's screen for 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, three minutes, whatever. All they're looking for is an exchange of value. So they want to be educated. They want to be entertained. They want to come away feeling that they've gained something from watching your video. So that is what we do. Like that is like the obvious thing for us to do is to feed feed their hunger. So like they want to be educated. Okay, we'll give them information. We'll tell them stuff they probably didn't know. Or we'll tell it in a really digestible, like easily consumable way by telling it in a story. And we'll entertain them by doing like fun things in the office, like trying to get them involved, building a community. Because at the end of the day, we're just human beings. We want to feel a part of something. And it goes all the way back to when we were cavemen in the tribe. If you're not a part of something, then you're an outcast and you're going to die. That's basically what it was like. So like, and it's the same, like we, we've still got that inherent thing in our, in our minds, in our brains now, like we want to be a part of something. So what we do is educate, entertain, and try and make f- people feel that they're a part of our community. And if you don't want to be a part of our community, that's absolutely fine. But we're giving everyone the opportunity to become a part of it. So one of the things that I think is a major reason why people wear luxury is for self-expression. And one of the reasons yeah. I like to get to know brands is because you can see different aesthetics, you can learn about materials and designs, and you can refine how you might want to express yourself. Pres- presuming you can afford it, and there's always something you can afford which is cool looking, you can decorate yourself in a way that tells the world what your personality is. But that seems to be mm-hmm. slightly in contrast with the behavior of just sort of listening. So how do you integrate the self-expressive element, which means you have to choose what you like, with some of the sort of winner-take-all approach of social media popularity? I've just never quite reconciled this. I'd love your opinion on it. So that's a good question. So like what we do is that I know, and my brother know from like, we read a lot, we educate ourselves, we're always looking to learn. We know that you can never be told something and agree with it. Like no one wants to be told or spoke at. People want to be 
People want to make decisions for themselves. They want to feel that their decision is because they think it. And most of the time it's not. It's because society, society whatever, other pressures have been like put on them. But like people don't want to, don't, people want to make a decision for themselves. So we don't, we don't, we don't tell people or, or like direct people to like this or look at this, or we just produce as much content as we possibly can with different images. And we don't even give our opinions on it. We just say, this is this, this is that. Do you like it? We get people's opinions. We get people's thoughts on it and they make the decision for themselves. And I feel like, especially as you're saying, if like people want to express themselves, them making the decision for them because I can't tell someone to express themselves in a certain way because how the hell am I going to know how a million different people want to express themselves I just really think it's all about giving people the exposure giving people the kind of most information possible so they can then make a decision on themselves on how to express themselves yeah so the goal is to educate people and inform um it is not to tell them what they should think. I tell Bye. people what I think, but I make it clear. This is yeah, my yeah. opinion <laughs> and why I've come to this <laughs> yeah, yeah, conclusion. Just... And I'll give you like the bits and pieces of, of my rationale, but you obviously need to make up your own mind, which leads me to another interesting topic and I'd like your opinion on, and this is the influencer. Now I have a term for influencer and it's opinion mercenary, right? That's what I call yeah. them, opinion mercenaries, because essentially they're opinions for sale. What do you mean by mercenary? Well, uh, if you think of a soldier, a soldier fights for a cause. They fight for something they believe in. The idea is that they're, they're, they feel like they're on the winning side. But a mercenary will fight for money. It's not about um, the cause. It's about who's paying me. And so the idea is an opinion mercenary, their opinion's for sale. So they, uh, they, will, okay. they will opine the strongest direction they can uh, to whoever pays them the most. Now... Social media has made the influencer possible because it sort of came out of this vacuum, this media vacuum. But I think it's a fluke and I, I don't think it's long for this world. And I think that the concept of what an influencer is kind of cheapens online media. I don't think you're an influencer and I don't want to be an influencer myself because, again, I don't think our opinions are for sale. But there's a lot of this and there's plenty of people who are more than happy to put their opinions for sale. I think we both hopefully agree that this sort of influencer concept concept is temporary and won't exist forever. But for in your opinion, how how quickly are we going to see the end of the influencer or is it going to remain stubbornly around for a while, even though we all agree it's a bad thing? I don't know whether I do agree with you, you know, because like, why do you think it's why do you think it's a bad thing? Well, you said yourself, people want to be educated. They want to be informed. They don't like to be deceived and manipulated. And the idea is that uh -huh. if an influencer is doing their job properly, they're telling you something that they say they think, but they don't really think. And that deception is something people uh, want to avoid. Okay, so that may, yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. But that's why the best influencers, and like I think influencers like a blanket term and it has got a bad rep, but I do think the 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 influencers that have the biggest communities that stay around the longest that have the closest fans that have people screaming their praises is the ones that are authentic as possible you touched on that point there of people don't want to be lied to or like told their opinion that we subconsciously know that they're not telling the truth they're just getting a paycheck for it but like with social media and the way it's evolving and the way 
the generations of come of coming up with the Gen Zs and Millennials. You you can't you can't fake it anymore. Like in the early days, one million percent, you could fake it. You could say this is the best skincare. This is the best uh, water I've ever drank. These are the best uh, speakers to have on your podcast. So you need to buy them. You can see right through that now. And the most the, the the one the influencers that are winning the most are the ones that are as transparent as possible, as authentic as possible, as real as possible. And people now can genuinely, I would say the majority of people, and I don't know whether it's just because I'm in the social media game, but I genuinely believe, genuinely believe a lot of people can see right through influencers. And yeah, Ariel, they might get $5,000, $10,000 for a promo for shouting out, but that's all they're going to get. Long term, it's not going to work well for them. The best influencers are the ones that are consistent, that are truthful, that are transparent. And they're actually, as a, from a brand's point of view, they're the ones you want working for you. The ones that, they might not have a million followers, they might not have 500,000 followers, they have 20,000 followers, but they have like 20% engagement, which is humongous. Like they have loads of people commenting, they have loads of people liking, they have loads of people supporting. They're the influencers you want. And yeah, like anything, people will take advantage of something that's an opportunity. But the ones that will get the the ones that would take the most out of the opportunity are the ones that understand it and the ones that are, are real. That's my opinion on influencers for sure. I like the word promoter to describe them. And you said yourself that the word influencer is is uh, rough uh, at the least. What what types of terminology do yeah. you like? Like, cause I've grown up with like the fact of influencer. Influencers like I would just say from a from a brand perspective, influence like people can literally just put in their bio influencer. It's similar to like people putting entrepreneur in the bio. <laughs> people who start a business on, on Shopify just put entrepreneur in the bio. Like like the, the thing is, is that the ones that are successful and the ones that if you want people to validate your opinion and if you want people to trust your opinion, you've got to have evidence to back it up. So if I say if I say to people I can t- I can help to teach you authenticate handbags and they're like well how or like well I've got a business that, that sells pre-loved designer um, luxury pieces they've been doing it for five years and we have over a million followers on our social medias they'll be like okay I believe you I'll do that whereas like with influencers they they try and sell a product um, on their story on their posts on Instagram then you go oh yeah that looks like a good product. You click their you click their posts and you see they've got like no likes. You see they've got um, no followers. They're very very not bothered about community. By the way, the whole page is set up. They've got no evidence to back up that what they're saying is true. And I think that's all it is is about building experience and building knowledge and just doing stuff. Just like just experiencing stuff and like taking every opportunity. And like yeah, it takes time to do that as an influencer, but. Everything takes time. Everything that's worthwhile takes time. So like, f- back to the question, I just went off on a little bit of, ta- of a tangent there. Back to the question, what I would describe them as. It's kind of like, I don't know, like a cultivator that's like, that will cultivate conversations, that will start conversations, that will build. Like, I really like the word community and it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment. I, I know that doesn't really tie into what an influencer is, but I really do think the top influencers have the best communities. So if I was to describe an influencer, it would be something around building like a, a trustworthy network. Like a community I, I, builder, I like a you, kind of community leader yeah, slash exactly. cheerleader. A hundred percent. That's that's perfect way to sum it up. I like to have these conversations because 
a lot of the listeners of this show are watching industry professionals that do want to understand what's going on, that do want to make correct mm. marketing and adver- advertising decisions, but are, are paralyzed because they're looking for tried and true things. A lot of this is buzzwords. And, you know, uh, I, again, when, <laughs> when I first started, at, I was the first blogger to make a full-time living being a watch blogger. And I had to like get snuck into watch brand meetings at the major trade shows, right? Like I have funny stories about like how I literally shoved my way into this industry, but it it, it took a lot of work and it it wasn't so easy. And I know that their willingness to understand what it takes to truly be a known brand in 2023 and beyond is going to be hard for them. And so these types of conversations hopefully can educate them a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's a stodgy, you know, slight, very conservative old school industry. And it's like, on the one hand, you want them making watches the old school way. You just don't want them doing anything else the old school way, but they can't help themselves. Is it like that in the fashion industry? So like just going off, off on that, I'll answer that question in a second, but just like, you will know this firsthand. And this is like, hopefully what other people listening to this will really should take on board if they're trying to create something if they're if they're trying to understand about how to do something and it's my favorite quote and it's from someone called chris williamson who have you ever heard of a program called love island i've heard of it haven't seen it but heard of it so it's basically where all these single like 20 to 30 year olds go onto this island they try and meet someone they couple up and a winner gets fifty thousand dollars fifty thousand pounds he was on that about five, about seven or eight years ago. And like, he is now one of the world's best podcasters. And he talks about like self-development. He talks about like what life is, what suffering is, like the whole thing. And, he, and I was listening to one of his podcasts the other day. And he said, you can't guarantee consistency will get you there. But you can guarantee if you aren't consistent, you'll never get there. And when you were saying about how you used to barge your, barge your way into these uh, different events and different meetings like and I bet you and, and when when you were saying at the beginning you used, to, you used to write loads of blog posts every single day like just to just to kind of get as much information out there as possible like I really think everyone listening is like the most important thing no matter if you understand TikTok no matter if you understand social media is you've just got to be consistent with it you can't give TikTok a go and be like oh it didn't work for me and then you go oh well how long did you try it for and they're like oh I posted about eight times I was like well that's not enough and I think like you, you, you will be able to resonate with that about like the most important thing is just being consistent and staying with, staying with what, what agree, you want to do. I agree, but I want to contrast it to the past. And this is sort of the interesting thing. Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, all of them. These are some of the world's first businesses that do not tell the world how to use the business. They don't have instruction manuals. They don't really want you to know how they work. They tell you, do something here, but we're not going to tell you what. Yes. So if you grow up with it, I guess you sort of understand it's just sort of a sandbox and you try stuff and if it works, great. But if you're anyone else who grew up before that, you're like, wait a minute, there's no instructions. You're not really going to tell me what you want. It's super unclear. Okay. People are waiting for, uh, guidance is the easy way of saying it, but basically instructions. In order to succeed on the platform, Okay. Can you platform just tell me what you want? And they're just mystified because it doesn't make sense to them that there's a business that wants their contribution but doesn't tell them what to do. And many people can't quite get over this. Okay, interesting. So 
let, so like this is aimed towards the older audience. Let's kind of like put it in a way how older people who aren't used to social media would e- be easily be able to digest how social media works. So we've spoken to a few of the f- few people at different companies and like, yeah, what you're saying is true. They don't want you to know how to do it, but what's the point of everyone being good at it? Because then it will all just get diluted and like no one's going to stand out. Everyone will be equal. Like you've got, you've got to, you, you've got to be able to have some good people. That's what capitalism is. You've got winners, you've got losers, and like on social media, you've got winners, you've got losers, and they're just like the people who are good at it and the people who aren't good at it. But like capitalism, there are some people who started off with no money and have a lot of money, and that's exactly the same as social media. There are people who will start off with not a lot of followers and get lots of followers and not a, not a big community and a small community and get a big community. But let's look at it in terms of like an easily digestible way for the older audience to look at social media. So what you want on your socials is you want likes, you want people to like it, you want comments, you want people to talk about you, you want shares, you want people to share your page, um, and you want watch time. So you want people to be on your videos, on your profile. So let's look at it as like back in the day before social media, there was there was a shop. Everyone had brick and mortar shops. That was the way to... To, to get your brand out there by having a place where people could come. So let's treat your social media like a kind of shop. So you want people to like your shop. If you opened the shop back in 1960, 1970, 1980, you wanted people to like your shop. So what would you have in there? You'd have, it would be nicely presentable. Um, you'd have good products in there. Um, you'd, you'd, you'd make it a nice experience for them to come to. So that, that there's your likes. That's what you've got to do on your, on your social media. You want people, you want comments. So you want people to talk about you. You want people to talk about your shop back in the day. So you did stuff in your shop that you want that you wanted people to cultivate conversations about. You wanted shares. So you wanted so shares is kind of like word of mouth, other people talking about your shop. You like that's what you want on social media. It's the exact same thing. Like, and you want watch time on your on your videos. You want people to come to your shop. It, it just like when someone explained that to me a, a few months ago, it just really made sense of like it's just the same as opening a shop 30 years ago it's just you all you do it all on your phone now does that make sense it does it does but here's the one area that still needs an answer and there isn't an answer out there but but i'm telling you the one i love that you're having this analog to like brick and mortar because there's there's a lot of great examples you can use there and one i think that makes a lot of sense is you have a store on a corner Okay. okay and there's two things that you have naturally You have street traffic, like cars driving by and seeing you and knowing you're there, and foot traffic, people walking by, okay? So if you do no advertising and marketing of any kind, at the very least, you have the people who are just going by your space. Mm -hmm. Online, yes, you have kind of like a physical presence, but it's like your store's in the middle of space. There's There's no one just walking by. Unless someone like specifically wants to go to your location, they're never gonna notice you. Okay. So if you go to the trouble of opening up a store in the middle of space, you're like, I don't want to have a store here unless there's a couple of roads here or maybe some type of teleporters on an ongoing basis or some way of making sure that like someone actually comes here. Now, most of the ways today to do that either involve spending an enormous amount of ongoing money on buying traffic or creating content 
which gets people there, but isn't predictable. You can't just say, I'm going to spend $20,000 on this ad and I'm going to get $20,000 worth of traffic. Like it depends on popularity because online it's an extremely competitive environment for content. Like your content has to be super good. Plus you kind of got to be lucky a little bit for, for it to get out there. So if you're a business owner, you're like, wait a minute, I have to either spend a fortune to get people here on a regular basis who may not even want to be here or I have to play a bunch of psychology tricks every like every couple of hours <laughs> to get people here. Like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to hire for that. That's not me. Like, I just want to put money into something and get an ROI. What the hell's going on here? Okay. And there still isn't an answer on how to consistently get people to your online store. Okay, well, I'm going to contrast that and say, if you open the shop up on the street corner, it costs you money. If you open up an Instagram account or a social media account, it is free. It is free to do. So like you could argue the bigger risk is, yeah, you've got guaranteed foot traffic, you've got guaranteed street traffic, but you, you're paying for a premises that if it's not good, if, 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 you don't, if you don't have good stuff inside or you don't have the storefront nice or you don't have like a good product that people want, no one, like you've just wasted money on opening up a shop. Social media is literally free. You can open up an account. You can post a video. All, all it takes is a little bit of time to create, create, a, create a community, is to figure out how to make good content. Like if you do something so much over a long period of time, it's the formula of time slash quantity equals skill. It is, it is okay to start a social media account now for your business and you not be good at it because you just won't be and you are not good enough to make content, comma, yet. And then if you do loads of it, over a long period of time, one day you will wake up and be like, oh, I'm good at this now. Because that's just a formula. Like if you wanted to start running, all you need to do is run every day for, for a long time. Run 10 minutes a day, then go up to 20 minutes, then go up to half an hour and just do that every day for a whole year, then two years and then three years. And then five years later, you will be good at running. It's like, if I if I told you that there was a there was a sure way of you becoming a millionaire or you creating a good business is do it work on it every single day and five years later you will get there and I genuinely believe it is as easy as that it's just that people don't want to put in the time and they don't want to have that delayed gratification of the oh I, I want this now so I'm not going to do that for the future. If you want something so bad, you can wait for it. And that, that's like, I know a lot of people might disagree with that, but I genuinely believe that's how it is. There's a lot of wisdom there. There's a lot of wisdom there. And I think that if you're a manager at any company that could benefit from this, listening to this, the, the wisdom I'm hearing that maybe the most salient is start investing now. Mm. You need to develop competency. You need to educate yourself and develop a team. Start it now. Even if it's little, start your... Uh, your your content creation, figure out what social media channels you like, but s just somehow get started because no matter what, it'll take time. Ariel, literally, like 100%, that's a great way to sum it up. And just to finish off with another quote is that you literally just said it there. It's like, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a good one. Um, I, I'll, I'll ask one last question because we're out of time and we'll have to do this again, but this is going back mm. to watches. As I understand it right now, Lux Collective doesn't 
um, have watches as part of your inventory? Are mm-hmm. you getting get, get into watches? And and what is your particular strategy with watches if you if you if you are? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. And um, so obviously we're a pre-loved uh, e-com site that sells like the likes of Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, Saint Laurent, handbags, shoes from those types of brands, and we are looking always to expand our inventory in ways that we see fit for our customer. Our, our focus is always on our customer. And I think that's why we've grown so quickly and cultivated such a good community is because we're so obsessed with the end user of what they what they receive, whether that be through content or through the service or product that we offer. And watches is definitely something we want to get into. My brother, who I co-founded the company with, it's always been a big aim for him to do it. And I think the most important thing, and Joe will tell you, Joe, my brother will tell you himself, is that like it's just about timing. It's just about patience. And then it's just about like when it's not the least risky, but when we feel that the risk is worth taking. And at the moment, we're trying to grow our awareness of what we sell at the moment. So we're not starting watches in the next, like, it's not not to be in the foreseeable, but definitely next two to three to four, five years. We want to be a real player in that watch uh, watch market. And if I'm being honest, I don't know a whole lot of, about watches. And that's why you as a connection area is absolutely great because I know you can teach me loads about watches. And um, so hopefully like five, 10 years down the time, d- down the line when we're doing watches, I'll have you to thank for all the information that you've been able to give me over the years. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Uh, watches will still be a thing back then. I think... What I want to talk about in our next conversation is the strange irony that watches are as popular as they are today. They mm. were supposed to have died out a long time ago. And I think your audience will find it very interesting how the wristwatch was supposed to die many times over the last several generations. That is really interesting. Like there's so much content I can create for my customer customers around watches. And like even that little story there you just told me is like it's got me thinking about like why do people still wear watches when you can just check your phone or when you've got an iWatch or when you've got a Garmin? Like, it's really interesting. That I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation already. You'll, you'll get into it. Um, ben, where can people find more about you and your company on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Lux Collective is the handle on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. And then if people want to find me on LinkedIn, it's just Ben Gallagher. Ben, thank you so much. This has been the Superlative Podcast with Ben Gallagher, co-founder of Lux Collective. Ben, again, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.